Good morning. Happy New Year. Tom mentioned uh, in his prayer that uh, that Pierre, uh, Alexis's father, uh, passed, and so it's going to be a difficult start to the year for our missionary and real beloved friend and pastor, Pierre, and I would ask that you would really lift up prayers for him and his family this week and in the coming weeks. Take a guess uh, as to who is the most trusted and uh, influential man in America. Trusted and influential person in America. Who do you think it is? Who? Obama? No. <laughs> Who is the most trusted individual in America according to the polls? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Very nice. Billy Graham. Still. The most trusted man in America. A man of incredible influence. A man of, of power. A man who uh, is uh, finishing his earthly ministry and and will one day be in the presence of his Savior. Um, incredible influence. Uh, incredible use of his power and authority. An ability to develop the trust of people over many, many, many decades of life and ministry. You know, you think of power. Uh, power usually what? Power corrupts. And uh, Billy Graham is one who we can say, my goodness, thank you, Lord, for a man who used his power and authority in a way that increased the people's trust in him. In the Gospel of Luke today, we're going to be in chapter 3. So grab a Bible and turn there. And Luke is very interested this morning in communicating to us about power, about influence, about who it is that we look upon and think, my goodness, what a powerful and influential individual. He's going to talk about people who the people of his day would have been very accustomed to. They would have seen a list of, of certain people written down by Luke and they would have went, oh yeah, those were the powerful ones, all right. But then he's going to talk about one other, one other that will surprise his audience and should surprise us as a remarkable man of power. The title of this message today is John's Powerful Influence. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 3? We're going to go from 1 to 14 today, a, a lengthy selection, but we'll move through it rather, uh, rather quickly. John, uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins." As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse 7. Then John said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked John, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Verse 12. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. You may be seated. Power. Power. Men in high places. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod, Herod Antipas there, being tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, tetrarch of Iteria in the region of Trachonitis, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. Annas, Caiaphas, high priests. Power. Luke sets up the opening words of this chapter in his gospel with a view to power. Men in high places. Caesar, Pilate, the Herods, the high priests. Powers in Rome. Powers in Judea, Galilee, the surrounding regions. Powers in Jerusalem. Powers in the temple. Those hearing the list of men in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 of Luke would have immediately recognized them to be the most powerful, influential figures of the day. Today's list, when we think of the list of powerful and influential would be people like Barack Obama, Pope Francis, Vladimir Putin, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. We readily recognize every single one of those names. And why? Because they are among the most powerful. They are among the most influential people in our world. We'd immediately know them to be people of power and influence. And for Luke's audience, the Caesars, the Herods, and the high priests of Israel would have been immediately recognizable. But who else makes the list in verse 2? And also, a crazy, desert-wandering hermit named John. John, the son of Zacharias, not living in a Roman palace like Caesar, not living in a Palestinian chateau like the Herods or Pilate, but living in the wilderness, 
many miles east of Jerusalem near the Jordan River, Luke is teeing up one of the greatest stories of social contrast in all of Scripture. That a nobody named John would exhibit a kind of power and influence that surpassed all others among the list. And what was the secret to John's powerful influence? Let's read verses 3 and following. It says, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight. The rough ways smooth. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's powerful influence was not a result of his office. And we think of office. Office. President. It's a high office. Pope. A great office. Prime Minister. An incredibly high office. Depending on uh, the various countries, they call them presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, and the, and the like. High office, CEO, high office. Those are powerful offices. But John's powerful influence was not a result of his office. It was a result of his divine inspiration and message. His divine inspiration and message. First, his inspiration. The angel Gabriel said of John to Zacharias in the temple, we remember chapter 1, he said, Zacharias, you're going to have a son. His name will be John, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. His inspiration will come from the filling of the Spirit within him. You know, we talk about uh, charisma today, right? Charisma. And by that we mean people who have uh, uh, special charm, uh, people who um, are attractive, who uh, have an appeal about them. They're magnetic. There's something about them that's just magnetic that draws others to them. But so much of that charisma is, is man-made. It can, be, it can be conjured up. It can be fake. It can be phony. It can be put on like a mask. Do you conjure up charisma? Do you conjure up a kind of appeal and magnetism for others? In, cer- in certain uh, uh, social settings, do you turn it on, so to speak? Put on the mask, put on the face, a big smile. Did you do it as you got out of the car when your kids were crying and screaming and you were fighting with your spouse, but then you got to the courtyard and your face changed? Did you do it then? We conjure up charisma, don't we? Scripture would have us not do that. Others see right through it. And you know what? Even if you're good at hiding it, you know in your heart whether you're being honest or merely putting on a, a costume. Would it be that, 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 that 
charisma in us would be real and authentic. That it might come from the Holy Spirit of God and not by our own machinations. You can put on a mask. It's, it's easy to do. Most of us will see through it. Some of us you'll hide it from. But nonetheless, why not seek charisma from the filling of the Spirit within you? Amen? When I think of charisma, I think of a number of um, individuals who exhibit real, genuine, uh, God-filled charisma and, and, and an attractiveness about of the person because of the filling of the Spirit within them. And one of the, one of the people in whom that is exhibited most for me uh, is my, was my college roommate Jeff, Jeff Dykstra. He's listed on your bulletin um, under those having cancer. And uh, yesterday we received word that, that Jeff died. My, one of my college roommates, um, he was mid-30s. Uh, his wife, Leah, whom he met at college, they had five children. And they live, lived in, they live in Whittier. And I just got word yesterday that, that Jeff passed. He fought uh, for about a year uh, various uh, cancers. Um, he was at UCLA um, since about late October, remaining there for two months, battling cancer. His wife making the trip, staying up there many nights, many times in the ICU, other times just in a regular room. And, uh, and uh, he lost the fight to cancer. But all the while, um, Jeff and Leah and their children and their church have been in a, a remarkable, remarkable example of what it means to have the charisma of the Lord in you. I know of no other person who was more joyful and hopeful, genuinely always hopeful, than Jeff. A real smile, not a put-on smile. A real hope, not one that, uh, that he conjured up. And uh, he and I, over the years, we, we really did lose touch. We, we, you know, guys, guys don't keep in touch with each other. We only lived 45 minutes away from each other, but we lost touch a lot. But uh, I will always remember him as having a real, spirit-led charisma. Do you have that charisma? John the Baptist was powerful. John was influential. Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. His powerful influence was a result of divine inspiration, first. And secondly, it was a result of his divine message. Divine message. Luke says that John preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John told all that would listen that their sins were great and that judgment day was coming. Now, were you to spend the rest of today criticizing others and telling them what's wrong with them, I suspect you would not have many friends. Try it. No, don't. But if you did, the rest of the day, just head on out to the courtyard and just start criticizing people and just start pointing out their sins and find out if your charisma works. 
we all know it wouldn't. We'd be like, well, yeah, everybody would run from that person, right? Everybody would get away from that person. They wouldn't be pleasant to be around. That's what John was doing. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was preaching about hell, about fire, about brimstone, about the great sins of the people that were endangering their relationship to God, that were endangering their region, their land of Israel, that were endangering their ability to go forward as God's people and to represent Him to the world. John was criticizing them and pointing out their sins. Now you would think that the vast majority of people would despise John for doing that. But the Gospels say just the opposite. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all attest, every single one of them attest, that far from despising John, the general populace as a whole, there were exceptions, but as a whole, they actually flocked to him. They went to him in droves. Turn over quickly to Mark chapter 1, just the book prior, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and look at verse 5. Mark chapter 1, verse 5. Mark writes this, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to John and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now we, we see baptism, we see confession. I see all. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him. Go back another book. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Hope you held your place in Luke too. Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Matthew chapter 3 verse 5. Matthew writes, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to John and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. All the land of Jerusalem and Judea and the Jordan and the surrounding regions. There were throngs of people, thousands upon thousands, that went out to see John at the Jordan. Did you learn that in Sunday school? I don't recall that one. I recall him baptizing. I recall him preaching. I don't recall there being throngs of people. A major cultural event was taking place. And it wasn't a play or a drama. It was a prophet in the wilderness, 25 miles away from Jerusalem, that everyone was talking about and throngs of people were heading toward, saying, what is he doing out there? Something's going on with this man. This man of power and influence. With few exceptions, the people flocked to John. And those who did not, those who did not, knew that they needed to tread carefully about what they said about John. You're in, back in Luke chapter 3. Turn over to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. The people who despised John knew 
that they needed to be very careful about what they said about him because of his power, because of his influence. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the religious leaders, chapter 20, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me this. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And the religious leaders, they, they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say, why then didn't you believe him? Verse 6, but if we say from men, that his baptism was from men, then all the people will what? Stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. The religious leaders of Israel were terrified of speaking ill of John the Baptist. That's how much influence he had. That's how much power he had. That's how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands were going out 25 miles east of Jerusalem and finding that this man is, there's something remarkable about him. He has got a charisma I've never seen. He's criticizing people. He's telling them about their sins and the people are flocking to him. Many of the people responded and embraced to everything John said and they responded in repentance. Yet such a response really does defy human logic. We would walk away from someone who was criticizing and pointing out our sins. Not so with John. It defies human logic. We would walk away. But the reason these people stayed is because this was not a human work. It was a work of the Spirit. When John spoke of things that are hard to hear, that are hard for sinful hearts to hear and to acknowledge, he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, anybody can criticize. Anybody can criticize. And we all do. Anybody can tell another person what's wrong with them. And we all do. We criticize our spouse. We tell them, why didn't you do this and that? How come you're not like so-and-so? How come you didn't do such and such? We criticize our children. We tell them what's wrong every day. We criticize our friends, our family, acquaintances, co-workers, our boss. Well, maybe. We criticize and point out wrongdoing. Anyone can do that. But it takes a special individual to do so in a way that makes deep, abiding, spiritual impact in the life of another. The next time you think you need to offer someone words of correction to perhaps your own family or friends, ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit that your words might be divinely inspiring for the recipient and not merely rude or harsh. Jesus also said, of course, you know, before you, you take out the speck in your brother's eye, take out the plank or the log in your own. So consider yourself before you criticize or point out the wrongs in another. Consider yourself. Take stock of your life. But secondly, if you do feel compelled to say something, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you that you might speak words of peace 
and reconciliation and hope and not just words that tear someone down. I suspect that inasmuch as John the Baptist preached really hell, fire, and brimstone and criticized and pointed out their sins, that he did so in a way that they realized this man is not attacking me. He's trying to help me. This man's trying to help me. I do have something wrong. I do need to get right with God. Would that we have a kind of constructive criticism, spiritually constructive criticism as John the Baptist. Such moments, are, they're kingdom moments. They can make or break a relationship with a person. They can make or break a relationship uh, between that person and God. You can push them further away from God the way you, you speak to another person. Or you can bring them closer to you and to the Lord. So walk carefully and remember that you represent Jesus with every word that you speak. You represent Jesus with every word you speak. John knew who he was representing. John knew who he was representing. He was paving the way for Messiah. He was laying the groundwork for the coming king. Take a look at verse 4 again. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places straight. The rough ways smooth. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. When the Caesars and the rulers of the ancient Near East, when they traveled, the outlying towns and municip- uh, pr- uh, principality, the, the places where they would go would prepare the roads that were filled with potholes and ruts. When the Caesars and other rulers traveled, they would travel upon newly repaired roads because the people rose up to ensure that the roads were well paved for their rulers. It was a sign of the people's respect. It was a sign of the Caesar's power. And so here, Luke is again reminding us of power structures as he quotes Isaiah. Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. The King of heaven and earth is coming. The King is coming. And John is making the roads ready for the king. For Isaiah, whom Luke quotes, the roads were also meant to symbolize the people's hearts, the character of the people, the character of the environment in which Messiah would come. Were things going to be ready? Were the people going to be ready to receive the king? Would the roads be straight? Would their hearts be open The roads, the hearts of Israel had been worn down to potholes. Yet up until that point, the people had been sluggish to initiate the repairs. The roads, the hearts were in need of restoration. And John was not shy to say so. Look at verse 7. Look at his message. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized him, brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid 
to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's interesting, uh, verse 7. Matthew, Matthew's gospel says that the term brood of vipers and all, all that happens after that, John's, John's words there. Matthew says that that, that that whole discourse was spoken to uh, the religious leaders. That John saw the religious leaders uh, coming toward him and uh, he looked up and he saw them and the first words out of his mouth was, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Matthew, however, enlarges that context. Excuse me, Luke, however, enlarges that context. Luke says, verse 7, Then John said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. In other words, that that it wasn't just for the religious leaders, but it was for the, the populace as a whole. It was for the populace as a whole. In essence, John is questioning the motives of everyone who approaches him as he preaches and baptizes in the Jordan. Now think about that for a minute. He's questioning everyone's motives openly, out loud. I think of, you know, going out on maybe a first date with someone and, and uh, you know, you, you pick her up, you take her to dinner and you look across the table and say, now why did you go out on a date with me? I question why you would do such a thing. How would the woman respond? Uh, check, please. <laughs> Actually, he can pay it. I'm out of here. How about, uh, how about a church growth strategy? Here's a good church growth strategy. We're going to instruct the greeters that when uh, new people come, they're going to say this. They're going to say, um, who are you? Uh, now, wait, why are you here? Why are you showing up today? Oh, oh you have kids. That's nice. Uh, that doesn't make me trust you. Greeters, would that enlarge our church? Probably not. Could you imagine questioning the motives openly, out loud, of everyone you interacted with at any given time? Here's John the Baptist. Throngs of people are coming out to him. Powerful, influential man. He's got, he's a hermit in the wilderness, in the desert, Outside, far outside of Jerusalem and throngs of people are to come to him and as they come to him he's openly questioning every single one of them who walk toward him. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? That's a quick way to send people packing. When the first thing you do is question their motives. Yet that's what John does in the story of Luke 3. And the people stay. They stay. We said in the courtyard, were you to criticize and point out people's sins, they would walk away from you. (laughs) In the courtyard, were you to sit around questioning everyone's motives, they would walk away from you. Everyone kept walking toward John as he did these things. Powerful influence. Powerful influence. And why? Defies human logic. It's because it wasn't a human work. It was a spiritual work. It was a kingdom work. 
He warns them. He says, don't assume your status as a child of Abraham is enough. As, as a matter of history there, the reason he says that to the people is that many of the Jews assume that because they had the bloodline, because they could trace their lineage back to Abraham, that somehow that would guarantee them a spot in the kingdom of God. Many of the Jews assumed that it was simply because they were a Jew that God would show favor upon them and give them salvation. For us today, we might liken it to going to church. Don't assume you're right with God simply because you're here. Don't assume you're right with God simply because you pray or give some money or serve a little bit. Don't, assume, don't make that assumption. That would be the, the parallel today. Such things are important, very important, but they don't make you right with God. It's a matter of the heart. And that's why John is criticizing the people and pointing out their sins and questioning their motives because John divinely knew their heart. John the Baptist knew the people. God had given him a supernatural insight into the heart of the people who came to him. And he said to them, wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. God has a big axe and he's swinging it down upon those who do not humble themselves before him. The axe is laid to the tree. He's not asking you to be faultless, but he is asking for fruit. He's expecting fruit. That is to say, good works to be evident in your life. Fruit that comes not by man-made effort, but a reliance upon his spirit. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fire there is to be interpreted as judgment. No question. Some teachers would say that it's the judgment of hell. But theologically, I would disagree with that, as that would require a salvation by works, reading of verse 9. And we know that salvation is by faith, not by works. And so instead, when we read fire in verse 9, it is simply to be read as a declaration that God will judge those who do not bear fruit, those who do not walk according to His Spirit. Let that be something you take with you today, that God has judgment for those who don't bear fruit, for those who walk through life not considering the state of their heart, not caring about the sin in their life, and in rectifying it before Him, and in going on to walk in His Spirit and to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. As we begin a new year, God wants us as a people to be fruit-bearing, to be maturing, to be growing. Trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. They're judged. doesn't necessarily mean hellfire here. Theologically, we can't say that. Because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we're justified by faith, not by works. But judgment is still a very present reality for the Christian, for the person who transgresses God over and over and over again 
and assumes that he won't do anything? Assumes that they won't reap what they sow? You've got to be kidding me. Of course we will reap what we sow. John the Baptist is telling that to his audience in no uncertain terms. God will judge those who do not bear fruit. Fruit that comes from walking in the Spirit. Not man-made fruit, but from a reliance on the Spirit of God. So I'm asking you, are you walking in the Spirit? Are you humbly relying upon God, listening to Him, doing what He asks? How do I know what He asks? I read His Word. I pray. I walk openly with my community of faith, asking them to give input to my life, to criticize me when I need it, to give me some some perspective, some wisdom for how I ought to live, to point out my deficiencies and say, "I, I think that you can improve here. These are things that God is asking of us. And then there's something else, and John answers it. What, what else is God asking of us? The people ask John that same question. Take a look at verse 10. The people respond and say, so the people answered, uh, asked John saying, well, what shall we do then? We, we know that judgment's coming. We know that, that, that fire comes to the one who does not bear fruit before God, that, that God will not be pleased if we just live this laissez-faire life. What can we do? Verse 10, they asked John. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. <laughs> you know, you, you read that and you're like, that's, that's really basic. Really? That's your answer, John? God's judgment is coming. Hell, fire, and brimstone. You better walk with the Lord or else you may be judged. You may be stricken. You may experience uh, death. Those of you who do not know Him by faith, you may be in danger of hellfire. That's John's message. And the people respond and say, well, what do we do? He says, give your tunic away. Really? Give my tunic away? Take the shirt off my back and give it to someone else. Really, John? John's answer is simple, to the point. But the point is not to be missed. John says, be generous, be generous, be generous. Be giving, be sacrificially giving. Meet needs, John says. Real needs. This is not mind-blowing stuff. It's not revolutionary. And it's not merely ideological. You know, a lot of powerful figures, right? The, the big list of powerful figures that I mentioned, when they give up to give speeches, everybody oohs and ahs about their ideology and the glorious words that they speak. And, and we walk away feeling so inspired and then we think, wait, what did, what did they say? Did they say anything? John is not interested in mere ideology, high words. He's interested in basic, practical meeting of human needs, being gracious, being generous, being kind, being compassionate, the fruit of the Spirit. I know a woman in the church that needs gardening right now. There's a need. I know some in the church that need meals. Uh, Leah, my roommate's wife, Jeff's wife, who's, Jeff's gone to heaven now, she needs meals. I, I looked at their 
their meal list and uh, their church has them booked, has Leah and her five children booked for meals every day from now into March. It's amazing to see that. But there are others in the church. Uh, Marianne needs drivers. She needs people to play cards with her. Some parents in this church need child care. My anniversary is tomorrow if anybody wants to offer it. <laughs> Actually, we already booked child care. It's okay. Some people need help moving. Just, just basic stuff. And, and John, John the Baptist says, judgment's coming to those who don't bear good fruit. People say, what can we do? And he gives them these basic things. He's like, hey, look, open your eyes. And when you see people who are hurting, who are in need, who need to pick me up, go meet that need and just and meet it in the name of Jesus. Say, you know what? Yeah, I'm doing this because Jesus loves you. That's it. Here's the shirt off my back. Here's help moving. Here's, here's a simple drive to the doctor's office. Here, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna mow your lawn. Jesus loves you. Simple. Remarkably simple. And yet we think, oh, that's so mundane. Isn't there something more ideologically stimulating? Something that's really intellectual? No. No, that was... That was for the Caesars and the Herods and the Pontius Pilots of the world. John says, you, you, uh, you do the basics. Others asked him, what can we do? Now, now we get to people who actually had some more influence. Verse 12, Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Here, Luke is telling the story of other people of great power and influence, some of, most of which were despised. The Caesars, the Herods, they were revered, they were feared. The tax collectors and the soldiers, there was a level of reverence and fear for the soldiers mainly, but there was also a, a, a huge disdain for these people and John's advice to them is also so simple he says look be honorable at work be at peace with people be content with your wages the tendencies of of these were like no uh, no different than any of us to be greedy to be dishonest to be discontent and John says would you just live well be an honest person at work don't worry about money Goodness gracious, there are more, more things to worry about. Don't worry about, or don't, don't, don't abuse people. Don't, don't, don't seek to manipulate people, tax collectors. Just treat them fairly. Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple stuff, not mind-blowing. And yet, for the people that came you know, you, you, you got to wonder. The man was criticizing, pointing out their sin, <laughs> openly mocking their motives as they walked toward him. What are you doing here? And they kept walking. They kept walking straight at him. And they asked him to baptize them. They said, I want to be identified with what you're doing. There's something about you, a charisma, a spiritual element about you that I've never seen. I want you to speak into my life and tell me how to live. 
And John baptized them as they repented of their sins and he paved the way for the coming of the king. He redefined power. He redefined what it meant to be a man, to be a a person of powerful influence. And he did it with a spirit-led charisma and a focus on the mundane, the basic things. Meet real needs in the name of Jesus. That's powerful influence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we want to be a people who responds to someone like John the Baptist. None of us like to be criticized, God. It hurts. None of us like to have our sins pointed out. None of us like to have our motives questioned. But God, we're all sinners. We know our hearts. We know the facade that we often put up. We know the mask that we put on and the costume that we wear. And God, we're tired of that. We want to be real and authentic. We want to be able to receive spiritually constructive criticism that we might grow, that we might walk toward those who are speaking to us in ways that would push us deeper in our walk with you. So God, would you give us the maturity, the maturity to walk toward those who are pushing us in a way that is godly and honorable? And would we seek it, God? Would we be humble enough to seek it? And then, Lord, that you'd give us the spiritual insight to not grasp for some highly ideological way of expressing our spirituality, but instead that we would just meet needs, real needs, right in front of us, to those who are poor, hurting, broken, and in need. That's what you've called for us. And you've told us, Lord, that that you'll judge those who don't have good fruit. We don't want judgment. We want your blessing. So help us to be a people that lives in ways that exhibits the hands and feet of Jesus. And would you bless us as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.